Well, um, it's typical that uh, Ryan, who led worship, who's a deeply Michigan fan, and uh, Joe Kaufman, who prayed, is a deeply Iowa fan, did not say a word about the Nationals, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Congrats. If you're into baseball, go ahead. You can cheer. I mean, it may never happen again. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but uh, I want to celebrate that with you guys. Okay? Uh, I think we needed it. The city needed it, so it's good. Okay. Growing up, my family had two rules. One, finish all your food. And two, if my brother or I got in trouble, both of us were punished. I disliked both of the rules, uh, one more than the other. Now, mind you, this is early 1980s South Korea, where overfeeding and harsh punishment were part of the five love languages. (laughs) From my recollection, the punishment never fit the crime. It was always excessive And I never for once believed my grandma who said, trust me, this will hurt me more than it will hurt you. (laughs) Needless to say, my brother and I, we got punished quite a bit. For example, we both got punished when I beat up one of the kids in the neighborhood. And we both got punished when my brother got beat up by one of the kids in the neighborhood. My grandmother was sending mixed messages. Do you want us to win or not? Like, come on, you got to pick one, okay? I didn't like the rules, but I understood the purpose, so I complied. That is, until my brother did the unthinkable. He burned down a house. He was playing with matches with his friends, and before they knew it, ashes. I couldn't believe I was about to get punished for this. How do you even get punished for burning down a house? As I braced myself for the worst, to my surprise, my grandma did not punish me. I was so thankful. That day I learned the true meaning of gratitude. And to my other great surprise, my grandma didn't punish my brother either. Honestly, I was somewhat confused. I was kind of angry. I said, you are becoming an enabler, Grandma. (laughs) You know, this is going to encourage him to burn down more houses. You know this. I get it. You can't punish your kid for burning down a house, but you got to give him something. You know, something. I was grateful for mercy shown to me, but not so much for mercy shown to my brother. Sound familiar? That's exactly where Jonah is in today's passage. He is grateful for the mercy that was shown to him that delivered him from the belly of a fish. And the same mercy that was extended to the people of Nineveh didn't sit very well with Jonah. What's going on here? Is it simply because Jonah did not like the people of Nineveh or is there more? Let's unpack this passage together. We're going to talk about two things tonight. First, let's talk about Jonah's anger. One of the key terms in the book of Jonah is this Hebrew word, ra'ah, which can mean either evil or disaster depending on the context. It's not clear in our English translations, but there is an interesting wordplay beginning with chapter 3, verse 10. 
It reads, when God saw what they did, how they turned from ra'ah, evil, God relented of ra'ah, disaster, that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, how does Jonah respond in chapter 4, verse 1? But it was ra'ah, evil unto Jonah, and it became hot to him. You can't miss this. Jonah is not just angry. I mean, he is furious. And it's not because he failed in ministry. No, it's because he succeeded. He preached the sermon and the entire city repented. I mean, let's pause for a second and imagine what this would look like if something, anything close to this happened in Washington, D.C. Glenn preaches a sermon And there is total and radical social, cultural transformation in this city. Can you imagine how wonderful that would be? Only to find Glenn at a bar drinking the night away. (laughs) And you see, like, Glenn, that was an amazing sermon. What's going on? Look, the city has changed. And it's all because of your sermon. And he says, I know. That's exactly why I am drinking the night away. I mean, seriously, just imagine that picture. It is odd, very odd. Yet that's exactly what's going on. So why is Jonah angry? Why is he so furious? There are three things. First, first reason is professional. Jonah is a prophet. And in that line of work, prophecies matter. So when he preached 40 more days and Nineveh would be overthrown, he really needed fire and brimstone. He needed Sodom and Gomorrah part two. Anything less would ruin his reputation and he would be labeled a false prophet. So when the people of Nineveh responded in faith, Jonah knew his career would take a big hit. And in an honor-shame culture, death actually might be better. Second reason is his people. Jonah loved his people. He really did. And he was very concerned about their spiritual state. Despite Israel's prosperity under Jeroboam II, Jonah knew Israel was headed towards disaster because of our persistent rebellion against God. And Jonah hoped that the destruction of Nineveh would be a wake-up call for Israel So when God relented, Jonah saw the writing on the wall. And perhaps, even as a prophet, Jonah knew Assyria's repentance would lead to Israel's destruction at Assyria's hand, as Isaiah 10.5 says. And the thought of God using Assyria, a Gentile nation, a sworn enemy of God's people, I mean, to execute judgment on Israel, Oh, that was unthinkable. That was unthinkable. Third reason is privilege. Jonah was a Jew. Part of the chosen race, a holy people set apart for God. And that came with a special privilege. And he did not want to share that with anyone else. Even the slightest possibility of sharing that privilege, or even worse, being replaced by Nineveh as God's people, drove Jonah mad. And that's why Jonah prayed, it is better for me to die than to live. I don't want to be around for it. I don't want to see it. 
But Jonah's anger is not the real problem. It's a symptom. Much like the check engine light that comes on your dashboard is not the real problem. His anger points to a deeper, more serious problem, which is his heart. You see, up until this point, Jonah managed his loves fairly well because they were really never at odds with each other. But the mission to Nineveh messed everything up. Jonah knew he would have to choose between God and his other loves. And that's why Jonah ran the other way as fast as he could. But when that didn't work out, Jonah lost his reason for living and he wanted to die. Can you relate to Jonah? I don't mean, do you get angry, disappointed, or discouraged when things don't go as you planned or hoped? This happens to all of us. Part and parcel in life outside of Eden. I mean, when things don't go as planned and hoped, you lose your reason for living and you want to die. Let me ask you, how do you react when your career doesn't pan out as you planned? How do you react when your relationship goals don't work out as you hoped? How do you react when marriage is not what you thought it would be? And for all the parents, how do you react when parenting is not what you signed up for? If you find yourself reacting like Jonah, there's no meaning and purpose in life. It's better to die than live. It's because you have turned God's good gifts into a God. See, these things were never meant to take the place of God. They're just things. Things that we are meant to enjoy. Tangible reminders of God's kindness to us. Things that God provides to enrich our lives. They're all good things. Career, relationships, marriage, parenting. These are all great things. But the moment we turn these things into a God thing, as A.W. Tozer once said, No amount of things can replace God. God who made us, knows us perfectly, and loves us unconditionally. There's no way these things can take the place of God. Let me ask you, for those of us who profess Christ as Lord, and those of us who believe that God is a kind Father who delights in giving good gifts to His children, instead of turning to these things, things to be everything for us I want to encourage you to turn to Christ and let him be everything he promises to be he will supply you with everything you need for life and for godliness and when he returns everything our hearts long for will become real and that's the promise given to us for all of God's people And so let's live with that promise written on our hearts by faith that now and in the age to come, that Christ will be everything for us. But we don't always do that well, do we? Like Jonah, we set our hearts on these things and they disappoint us. We're crushed. We don't know what to do. We get upset. We get hurt. We get frustrated. We despair even. I wonder how God treats us when we are at our worst. 
So let's go to our second point. God's question. God likes to ask questions. To Adam, he asked, Adam, where are you? To Cain, he asked, where is Abel, your brother? And now to Jonah, he asks, do you do well to be angry? With a question, God enters the hot mess that is Jonah. There is no judgment. There's no shame. There's no fear. There's no guilt. No, he simply enters with a question as if to calm an angry prophet so that he can sit and for a moment reflect and gain composure. God is indeed gracious, isn't he? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, even to an angry prophet. I don't know about you, but if I were God, chapter 4 would read very differently. I would come to an angry prophet, Jonah, and ask, really? Seriously, you remember just two chapters ago where you were? And that wasn't even a real confession. Yet I saved you. And this is all I get. Wow. You're worse than the people of Nineveh. I'm going to put you back in the fish. (laughs) Good luck, Jonah. But aren't you glad God is not like me? Even in our worst moment, God comes to us. Humble, gentle, with a question. To calm us down, to remind us of the gospel. And he invites us into a conversation with him. Let me ask you, what does your God say when you are at your worst? When you're surprised by the words that just came out of your mouth? or even the thought that you entertained with some delight, and you are shocked by the depth of your own depravity. In those moments, when you surprise yourself, what does God say to you? Does he say, really? Are you still struggling with this? Are you ever going to change I mean this. If you fail one more time, I don't know what's going to happen. So you better try harder and do more next time. Is that what your God says? Is that your gospel? If so, you don't know my God. And your gospel is not the gospel of Christ. You see, what you and I believe about God in our worst moments reveal our true faith. It's easy to believe when things are going well. But when we're not doing so well, it's hard, isn't it? To really believe in grace. I got a call earlier this week from a friend who's struggling with faith because life hasn't worked out the way she thought it would or should. She was confused and frustrated And she concluded that if she just prayed more and obeyed better, maybe God would turn things around and everything will go back to normal. 
And in our conversation, she went on to say, and I really tried this. I really tried to pray right, and I tried to obey better, but I couldn't do it. I could not. In fact, it was empty, and it was exhausting. There's no way I can be what I need to be. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? I said to her, I want to release you from this trap, sister. It sounds very spiritual to say I will obey more and do better. But it's not the gospel because God does not treat us according to our works. Otherwise, we would all be in serious trouble. No, he does not treat us according to our works. Rather, he treats us according to his perfect work. And there is only one person who could have answered yes to the question, do you do well to be angry? Jesus could have looked at all of our sin and mess and brokenness and could have said, yes, I have every right to be angry, but he does not. He weeps over Jerusalem as he weeps over his people, longing to gather us closer to his heartbeat so we would understand his mercy and grace for us. He is not an angry prophet. No, he's the weeping prophet who cares deeply for his people and identifies with us in ways that he didn't really have to. But he does. The Christian good news says that this prophet entered our mess. He took our place on the cross and drank the cup of wrath so that we, those who believe in him, might become the righteousness of God and enjoy all the privileges as sons and daughters. That's the good news, even when you are at your worst. You see, if you're a child of God, his band over you is love. He delights in you. Not only when you're doing well, but even when you're not doing well. He longs to hear from you, even when you pray the same prayers over and over and over again. He loves being with you, despite all your mess. He snuggles up to you, just wants to be near. You see, you might be shocked when you come face to face with your brokenness, but God knew all that. God knew all that long before he chose you and set his heart on you. Nothing's going to ever surprise him. He's seen it all, knows all, and yet he still chooses to celebrate you. It's like the father in the parable of the lost son. When the prodigal son returns, the father is filled with compassion and joy. Remember that scene? The son is covered in pigsty. I mean, it's not a pretty sight. And he is practicing the speech that's going to somehow earn a space in the father's house, not as a son, but as a servant. And when the father catches a glimpse of him way off, he comes running. He throws his arms around the son showers him with kisses and love. And he rejoices. 
the return of his son. That, I think, is a glimpse into the Father's heart for you. And maybe for some of you, you've gone through a rough patch, a difficult season in life, and coming to church is hard. Saying these words, really difficult. Maybe. And you're somehow trying to make it up to God by having the right attitude and praying the right prayers and singing maybe a little more earnestly. And God says, no, I love you. You have no idea. He's so glad you're here. He loves your voice. And he's paying close attention to your prayers even tonight. This is the Christian gospel. What it means to be a child of God. And why is this important? Because as a family of God, we're on a mission to love this city well, a city that God deeply cares for. And as Glenn said, it is not because the city has the monuments. It's not because it's the seat of power. No, it's because the people in it. God cares deeply for this city. And just as Jesus in John 10 said, there are sheep that are not yet in this sheep, hole, this sheep pen that my heart bleeds for. That's how God feels for the city. And he calls us, the church, the body of Christ, to engage it well. And in order for us to do that well, we have to first and foremost rest right here in the gospel and let this mercy shape our hearts. Because the only way we can engage the city that is so broken, city that is so divided, city that is so different from you, racially, ethnically, socially, politically, is by understanding how deep the Father's love is for you. And as you understand the depth of his mercy, then and only then can you lean into the city and carry out the mission to love the city well. Fear is not going to work. Guilt's not going to last. Shame will turn you inward. And sense of duty will wear out. But grace will sustain us. It will sustain us. And so as God's people, let's return time and time again. In fact, every day, let's return to this message of grace and mercy and remember it afresh so that our hearts will be moved, our obedience a joy, serving the city our delight. Let's pray together.